y'all. So the inspiration for this episode actually starts back in the pre-COVID times with me at a museum encountering video footage of Burt Williams, who was a big deal black vaudeville performer in the turn of the century. So late 1800s into the early 1900s. And in this video footage I saw, he was in blackface. And seeing a black man performing in blackface in like a very early movie, I had a lot of questions. And I found a lot of context and answers to these questions in the book Staging Race, Black Performers in Turn-of-the-Century America, which is by Professor Karen Sacharopoulos of Cleveland State University. So that's my guest today, because there's actually a lot to why Black vaudeville performers sometimes utilize blackface, and even when they weren't in blackface, often performed in very overly caricatured and stereotyped characters. As it turns out, This played into a dialogue that these black actors were having with their audiences. And also one of the big reasons for this was that black people had to play these kind of characters to be seen at all. Yeah. And they were just keen on how they were marketing blackface elements of their material. I mean, one of the things that was stunning and almost painful to read is the language in the reviews and comparing the way the black press talked about these performers and the way the white press talked about these performers, two entirely different conversations. One of the things that was stunning in the black press is they kept reading the words darky and coon in the black press. And I'm just pulling my hair out thinking, what is going on here? And reading those words as well in the white press, along with the N-word and talking about the performers. Wow, I finally saw that in the black press. Nowhere did you see darky or coon being used to describe any people. It was to describe a business. It was to describe an art form. It was to describe comedy, quote unquote, coon comedy, darky acts. And so the dialogue in the black press was, yeah, this is a whole performance style that is riddled with racism, but it's a way to get on the popular stage. And black audiences know we're real people and they know that we're joking. They know we're playing with this kind of conversational stereotype because no black person thinks that they're any of these people. You know, it's, it's clear that it's a white racist dialogue about black people. So black people are engaged in a dialogue about how white people see them, double consciousness of the boys in action, you know? And so they turn it into this business about getting on stage and actually having that dialogue with the stereotypes themselves. Whereas in the white press, no difference. It's a quote unquote coon act as only quote unquote coons can So it's racist ethnography for white audiences and the way they understand this language. But for Black folks, it's a very sophisticated and in-depth discussion about the way white folks see Black people and how does one self-represent on that global stage in daily life when you're always being seen through that racist lens. And Black reviewers aren't going to talk about that dialogue because it's so obvious to Black audiences what's going on. And instead, in the Black newspapers, the reviewers were writing about the professionalism, the business acumen, the brilliant theatrical styles, the musical styles. I mean, the brilliance of these actors and the success that they were achieving was representation of racial advancement at the time. It was stunning to see how two different entirely conversations, two different Americas, and two different understandings about race. And I didn't see anywhere crossing those lines. That was one of the stunning things to me. I know there had to be some white folks who understood what was going on, but they don't appear in any extant files that I could find. What you just said about this idea of double consciousness and Black people using the way that white people saw and stereotyped them to have a conversation about how they saw themselves with the Black people who were often segregated into the balconies. 
is super, super interesting. But before we get more in depth into that, I want to get more into the fact that to be seen really at all by white people and to become popular, black actors really had to play into these stereotypes, which you really get into at the beginning of your book talking about the 1893 Columbian World's Fair and the spaces there that black people were excluded from versus where they were allowed to be very visible. So let's get into that. Yeah, yeah. You mean the way that the Haitian exhibit turns into this meeting place of Black diaspora. Frederick Douglass isn't allowed to represent America, but he is invited as the consul to Haiti. He's invited by the Haitian exhibit to spend time there. And then he invites Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Ida Wells shows up. They turn this Haitian exhibit into this rich Black political center of activism. Whereas at the white city, which is what they actually call the super pro-American progress section of the World's Fair. There's Nancy Green, who is paid to perform as Aunt Jemima. The only Black person representing Black Americans at the white city is really Aunt Jemima, who is the fictional character, who was a white man in blackface and drag on a minstrel show that becomes the image of the flower millers. And then the fair does, they pay Nancy Green to perform the role of a real pantomima, clipping jacks and wearing a button saying, I'm in town, honey. And people believe this is a real person through her untimely death. They believe that this is really pantomima. I like how you zeroed in on that because it really shows <laughs> these two conversations. White people are embracing Aunt Jemima, this racist fictional character of a mammy as a representation of Black America, while Black people are involved in this sophisticated discussion about representation and global politics and Ida Wells' pamphlet, why Black people aren't represented at the World's Fair, talking about the numbers of lynching and the racist violence. I mean, this is just incredible, real moment sideline onto the Haiti exhibit while we've got a celebration of Antimana. Somehow that really sums up the tenor of the times. Yeah. And really shows why having to play into the stereotypes is really the only way to be seen. Yeah, and that they realize that. I mean, Aiden Walker says that time and time again, we are the face of the race. By getting onto the mainstream vaudeville circuit, not playing entirely white or entirely Black theaters, but the mainstream vaudeville circuit would be segregated audiences with Blacks in the balcony and whites in the orchestra. That was the North and West mainstream vaudeville circuit. And to do that, you were going to get more visibility. I can't, I always stress when I teach this to students that this is before, yes, we have some footage of Burt Williams and moving pictures, but that's later in the teens when we're talking about real turn of the century, you know, this 1895 to 1905, this decade that these folks were most active in and broke the color line in Broadway. We're talking about live theater. So these performers, what really struck me is that they knew that these circuits could get them visibility, but the hope that they had, that they could be seen as performers performing types that people would see through that as they recognize the humanity of the people performing. That's super important that these Black people in Blackface are doing caricatures of themselves knew that they were acting and they expected the people who were watching them to know that they were acting and that this was a role and that this was not like a real representation of what Black people were like. And you talk about this like dialogue that there was between performers and audiences. And one of the really interesting things you talk about with this dialogue is the way that Black performers often added aspects to the performance that were made for the segregated Black audience up in the balcony. They were specifically talking to them sometimes. Yeah, yeah. That, that show where, in Dana Land, where 
the whole plot of the show and it's vaudeville. This is an actual musical comedy with a steady narrative. that's sort of more vaudeville and little sketches, but uh, the show is Bandana Land where these black folks want to buy this property. They own some of the property. They want to buy the property next door owned by whites. And so they throw this big show, Bandana Land, and throw a big party so that the white folks sell on the property at discount. The narrative that white folks absolutely don't get is that the black people who own this property who are playing into white stereotypes of having a big noisy party in order to buy the white owned property at cost, you know, at discount. They're having a great time putting that over on white folks. And of course, black audiences get what's going on as a way to profit off of the way that white folks sell black folks. And meanwhile, complications come in when the black audience gets the joke that this show is about black folks profiting off of white racism and white folks in the audience, white critics. Uh, and I, I, I'll just stop for a second to say that this was one of the fascinating things about doing this research too, is that I'm not going to celebrate segregated audiences, but if you have a segregated theater audience, then the theater reviewers can tell you where the laughter is coming from. So I can figure out what jokes that black folks were laughing at and what jokes white folks were laughing at because of the segregated audience. So black folks would laugh at the fact that the story was about black people putting one over on white folks and white folks would then think that the black laughter reinforced their own stereotypes. So they would then think that the black folks in the balcony are laughing at the same stereotypes that they were laughing in. That black laughter actually reinforced the stereotypes that white audiences held rather than exposing this larger story. That's how deeply set white ideas of black people were in the minds of the time. So it's, to see all of that going on in the theater, this is a quite complex story. Definitely. There are multiple examples in the book where the larger plot of songs or whole musicals is very tailored to black people, where kind of the joke is on the white people. While the dialect, the language is tailored to stereotypes that get laughter from the white people. The one that I use is that the song uh, Swing Along from the show Into Home, which is the show about Black immigration to Africa and critiquing kind of, and for Black audiences, this is a show in 1903, it breaks the color line on Broadway. And it is a show that critiques Black immigration efforts as hopelessly flawed, which is not a dialogue that white audiences would know about or care about, but is part of that dialogue, this, the showstopper called Swing Along, and it's verbatim. The chorus of 60 is singing Swing Along, white folks watching and seeing what you do, white folks jealous when you're walking two by two, so swing along, chillin' swing along. And so, I mean, that's just verbatim, telling Black communities that white folks are jealous if you're in a large gathering, but hold your head up high with pride and gladness beaming in your eye. The lyrics are just stunning. And white audience completely miss that because they just see through this lens of stereotype and just see Black people singing and dancing and thinking that fit their ideas of primitivism and whatever. And on some levels, because these stereotypes were so deeply held by white folks, it gave these Black performers the space to have that kind of dialogue with Black audiences. They hoped that white folks would see through them, but at the same time, because white audiences and white critics had no idea what was going on, it allowed for this kind of conversation to happen in a population that is very small at the time. Less than 2% of the cities that they traveled in would have been of African descent. So it was a way of really coming together that I think is a powerful part of the story as well, just creating a social space to safely congregate at the time was an equally important goal. Africa is just a concept that comes up in a lot of 
vaudeville because that's something that black people were preoccupied a lot with. Yeah, no, I was stunned at the time when I actually read the librettas. Since I did the research for the book, which would have been in the 1990s, there's been a lot more scholarship on black engagement with Africa. But that didn't exist when I did this book. So I was stunned in this moment of social Darwinist beliefs. You brought up the World's Fair. The World's Fair had what you know, my students always say, those are people's zoos, these exhibits of primitivism, bringing people from West Africa to perform as quote-unquote savage Africans at the World's Fair is kind of the dominant image of Africa at the time. So to see that these Black performers, not only playing with stereotype in these sophisticated ways, but involved in African politics in this sophisticated way. In Dahomey in 1903, they critique... Black immigration efforts to Liberia. And then after they make it big, that was breaking the color line on Broadway in 1903. Then Williams and Walker become very well known with their company and they're able to stage another show about Africa called Abyssinia, which when I got that libretto, they follow the politics of Ethiopia and Ethiopia's victory over the Italians in 1896 in great detail in a musical comedy. That was completely a dialogue geared toward Black audiences. It was something white audiences were not privy to, interested in, knew nothing about, or would claim because King Menelik defeated the Italians in 1896 as the only African nation that did actually defeat European colonizers at the time. Whites started claiming that Menelik somehow had to be Caucasian. So whites were totally not interested in that in this Black show, Black produced, Black written, Black staged, Black audiences embracing a successful Ethiopian nation defeating European colonizers was just stunning to me. And at the same time, to come back to the ways that whites saw the show, because in this show, the Black performers limited the stereotype, the buffoonery, the comedy, and the Blackface. Williams always wore Blackface as a comedic character, but they had limited so much of that. White critics said Abyssinia was a white show. It's a Black show about a Black nation defeating European colonizers and sticking absolutely true to history. That's close as one could stick true to history and musical comedy with the knowledge at the time. But whites, if it didn't conform to stereotype, it wasn't Black. One, that's amazing. That's just really cool that that existed. And towards the end of what you just said, you were talking about this idea of authenticity and the way that when a Black show leaned away from really ridiculous caricatures. It was perceived as trying to be white, which there was that conversation. There were a lot of conversations around authenticity, both in like the white press and the black press around these performers that I definitely want to get into. That dialogue becomes, the Africa stuff is fascinating and an equally fascinating figure is Mary Cook, who is relatively privileged. The entire generation is born just in the years after the Civil War mostly to folks in the North and the West. But I see Cook as similar in some ways to Du Bois, except that Cook was an artist and went into popular culture. But William Marion Cook, born in 1869, just a year after Du Bois, born on the campus of Howard. His father had a position there, and he was moved to Oberlin. He was at Oberlin High School, and his mother decides to send him down to Chattanooga to stay with his granddaddy to learn some discipline in the South. And he's... Uh, classically trained violinist, but when he's in Tennessee, he hears what he calls real Negro melodies. And I think it's important to think about him framing it as melodies, not syncopated rhythms, real Negro melodies. He hears the music, spirituals, 
quote unquote slave songs, if you want to think about the naming of black music, but he hears roots of black music and interpolates it into his own classically trained music. Ends up in New York City. He ends in a special class with Dvorak, travels to Europe. Frederick Douglass raises some money for him. And he's infusing what he calls real Negro melodies with his classically trained musical styles. He calls it Negro opera. For him, it's operatic. But of course, it's dismissed as quote-unquote coon songs, as ragtime had the same dismissive tone at the time. But who's to say what the naming of the music is versus the inspiration and the authenticity? Where does that authenticity come from when a Black man who has European training interprets the songs of the South? Where isn't the authenticity in his music? I often feel that he continually was sort of bereft of the robbing of his intent, his musical style, and the naming of the music and marketing of the music as this low form, popular form of music that certainly didn't live up to his intent. This was just the dawn of this explosion of commercial culture that was sold at this time through sheet music, through the song sheets. And Black musicians just didn't have the capital to launch their own sheet music publishing. So the marketing of what is authentically Black is marketed through white racist eyes so that when they see the show Abyssinia that doesn't conform to their racist stereotype, they have no way of interpreting it except to say, that's not Black, that's white. (laughs) It's not authentically Black because it's not stereotypically Black. It becomes the lens of the public sphere that these folks are trying to intervene in. Black people are not a monolith. And there was this way that whenever Black people deviated from what white people expected, because on stage, Black people did try to show that Black people were not monolithic. And there were all kinds of discussions about like dialect. If they didn't speak the way they were supposed to, their hair, if it was like straight, if they wore too nice of dress, all of these things were seen as imitations of whiteness instead of depictions of being Black. Yeah. The first show that they did that talked about Africa, just like white folks which was Cooking Dunbar who wrote a lot of the material, they were critiquing Black elites who claimed that they were descended from African princes and kings instead of being African-American, you know? (laughs) They were trying to claim some kind of royalty that came from Africa, saying these Black elites are trying to act like white folks who claim elitism from European descent. That was the Black critique, but whites saw that, again, as just a Black troop trying to be like white folks and failing at every turn. So again, it's this complex dialogue about internal Black community politics about self-representation and lines of dissent and dialect versus straight English. And Dunbar would move between both dialect and straight English in order to show that complexity. Vaudeville actors were definitely leading Black people. They were highly visible. They made good money. And yet they were not really accepted into the ranks of Black leadership by other Black people because there was this whole thing about respectability politics at this time. Yeah, that was always the hardest chapter writing about respectability politics and writing about gender becomes the most sort of subtle and complex piece to write about. There's this moment of these performers critiquing Black middle-class society. And I think part of the tension is that they are successful and they are in some ways competing for white audiences' attention. But Black elites who don't want to be associated with Blackness, they are trying to be just like white folks, you know, the show that the Black performers made to critique Black elite pretension. 
And so they're trying to navigate this public sphere that's very complicated, recognizing the way the white folks saw them. In the private sphere, they would certainly partake in black cultural forms and cultural styles and dance styles and musical styles. But in public, they wanted to distance themselves from the ways that white people saw black folks. And so it makes a very peculiar struggle of representation. Much of it revolves around women's public expression. Ada Walker, when she is able to perform Salome, which is a sexualized dance, more straight theater, respectable moment is kind of a breakthrough performance for Black women at the time, because just performing in public, the whole realm of popular amusement. Du Bois has this piece that he writes about the mixing of young men and women in public space and the aspect of vice that would be sought going along with that, that would represent the race badly. So he just distanced himself from the entire realm of popular culture during this time, say 1895 to World War I era. So yeah, there is this tension that predates some of the dialogues of regional, generational, and class divide within Black communities post-World War I with the Great Migration. But that starts in this period as well with, again, I would come back to the success of these performers and starting to become the public face of the race. Yeah. Vaudeville, like you said, it allowed women to have a public role. And something else interesting is that Black performers were some of the most conscious of how they were seen just in their daily lives because they were hyper visible. So they were very into like not being caught doing any other kind of vice. Yeah. It just reminded me of that moment that George Walker was George Walker made sure that in daily life, he was dressed in finery and he's riding a streetcar and somebody's like, ah, Chief Walker. And they're having a conversation about why do you dress like that? And I was like, well, because you know, I'm self presenting as George Walker and this is who I am. I mean, he's, kind of having this complex conversation and the white guy says, well, I've never had a drink with the N-word before, but, you know, would you have a drink with me? <laughs> and Walker says, thanks, but no thanks. You can have a drink with me as a man, but not as an exception. It brought up how they were paying attention to their every aspect of their self-presentation in public space. All the world's a stage, right? And for Black people, the burden of representation in daily life becomes even more attenuated. It's like you can picture that, that dialogue that they're having with larger white and Black communities 24-7. It doesn't stop. The stage is one aspect of it, but the stage is everywhere they step in Jim Crow society. Yeah, truly. So towards the end of the book, you take vaudeville towards the Harlem Renaissance, because the reason why Black people were in Harlem is because Black vaudeville performers had the money to buy real estate in Harlem. That's really what makes Harlem a Black neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The center of Black life was in the West 50s and the housing bust and boom meant that some of these folks were some of the first buyers in Harlem. So I'm glad you got that from the book because just the way we're speaking right now, it is hitting me in a different way in part because Harlem is on the decline as a Black cultural center right now, right? So Harlem as a Black cultural center being on the decline today (laughs) versus these folks really bringing Black art to Harlem, creating Harlem. So that Langston Hughes wanted to get to Harlem to go see Shuffle Along, even though Shuffle Along is riddled with so much stereotype in 21, he wanted to see Shuffle Along and be in the, this milieu of Black artists at the time. The other, I don't know, I feel like history doesn't have twists, but the other twist is that like, right as these Black vaudeville performers had the money to like go buy nice real estate in Harlem was around the same time that, you don't really use the word cultural appropriation, but that's kind of what it looked like to me, this way that white people 
took black people out of this cultural production and started making it themselves. Loving the way that you read and fully understand my book. It's, it's bringing back all these stories to me in, in a terrific way. And it's, it's an incredible gift to old scholars. <laughs> it's like the, this book is this alive. It's wonderful. But yeah, that's one of the things. It's around World War One when you know white people start embracing black culture. They stop. This is the shift that I really saw is that there is this shift. You know, white people start embracing black culture because they start to love it, not laugh at it, right? In 1898, they would have gone to go laugh at Williams and Walker's shows and say, oh, look at those primitive people. And Aunt Jemima, isn't she cute? You know, she's a mammy and she's really this person. They would go and they would laugh at black people or fear black images. By World War I, in part because of this generational moment of war, I still think the best book on Harlem Renaissance is Nathan Huggins' book, where he shows this shift of white appreciation for Black culture coming out of that experience of war and giving up on Victorian European ideas of civilization, this younger generation that starts to embrace Black culture, Black dance, not Black people. That's the, the shift that you were speaking about. There's an embrace of Black style as being cool, being young. Irene and Vernon Castle are the biggest perpetrators of this around World War I, this dance couple. Irene learns all her dances from the domestic worker, her maid. <laughs> she learns these dances. Then she and Vernon take these dances to Paris and dance in Parisian cafes. Turkey Trot becomes a foxtrot, etc. They come back to New York as this white American couple who is now sophisticated by Parisian standards and start introducing Black dance styles to white audiences but not crediting Black performers, Black creators. Black musicians can perform, male musicians can perform the music. So it's like the sound is okay, but it's only white couples. There are segregated spaces and only white couples are dancing. And so, yeah, that's part of the dilemma that I see almost as more fraught in the 20s. There's one thing when you have this freedom to have this dialogue between Black audiences and Black performers about Blackness because white folks have no idea what's going on and they don't, want to be associated with Blackness is just funny or scary. But in the 20s, they think that they can do these Black dance styles better. This Black culture is a release for them. That's how Nathan Huggins talks about the whole Renaissance. It's like this release. Lawrence Levine talks about this as well in Black culture, Black consciousness, that whites after World War I, this young generation start embracing Black culture, Black music, Black dance as a release from the constraints of white Victorian civilization. But it's love and theft that Eric Glad talks about. It's this love of Black culture and theft of it. And it is cultural appropriation. I, I don't use the word intentionally because it's, uh, you know, I don't want people to say, oh, it's jargon-laden. You know? <laughs> I wanted to tell the, the history. This is what people were doing. But it's absolutely, cultural appropriation is absolutely what these white folks were doing at the time. And then they were starting to be the arbiters of Black art. They weren't saying, as the white critics said of Abyssinia, this show can't be Black. It doesn't have enough stereotype in it. It doesn't conform to my ideas of Blackness, even though it's about Ethiopia <laughs> and all of this. It's, it must be a Caucasian show. In the 20s, you would have whites wanting a particular kind of Negro art, quote unquote Negro art. And so they want control of the imagery now that they're embracing it because now they want to have their own interpretation of what they think Black art is and Black style is. So it's this, <laughs> the dilemma continues the dehumanization of Black people continues. What has shifted is that now Black style has become cheap, but now it's a product. It's another way of commodifying Black people, commodifying Blackness. 
another aspect of dehumanizing creators. So yeah, it's an interesting and torturous shift. It really is. So Black people, because they wanted to be seen, they wanted to be heard, they fed into stereotypes and they produced shows that in a complicated way, both were a dialogue with Black audiences and something to be laughed at and feed into white stereotypes. And wildly, they did it so well that in the end, white people took this away from them. They lost like control over the cultural productions. And yeah, it became appropriated. It became so popular, so cool that they lost control of being able to produce it, being able to profit off of it. It became a commodity sold by white people. The way you're framing that is it's absolutely what I'm arguing and painfully said. They, the art was so great. Their use of all forms of dance and performance and dialogue and writing full librettos and the style was so successful that whites wanted it for themselves. And then they were having their own dialogue about blackness, but it's without black people. They were having their own dialogue about what's more black, what white performer creator could create something that was more black. So it's almost taking even that rich and complex dialogue about blackness away from black people. Definitely. And that's the problem. It's cultural appropriation because you're taking the culture without the black people who created the culture. Thank you so much for coming on my show. This was lovely. Definitely, I want to continue looking at cultural production and cultural appropriation into the Harlem Renaissance at some point. But until then, if you like this show, you can support by telling people you know about it, following at We The Black People Pod on Facebook or Instagram. And if there's anything else in Black history you want to hear me discuss on this show, you can email me. My email address is wetheblackpeoplepod at gmail.com. All power to all people, y'all. 